morning we wrap up our latest installment of this mini-series we call Grace Stories. Uh, Over the years, so many of you have said this is one of the highlights of the year for you. And uh, I think the reasons are obvious because life is messy, right? We get stuck on Route 4 on a Sunday morning. Projectors don't work. We we don't feel well uh, at just the wrong times. And these stories connect with us with real-life messiness, whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus Christ or whether you are exploring the claims of Christianity. These stories give us a glimpse of God's healing, restoring, renewing power in the lives of people just like us. Grace stories are ordinary enough that you can connect to them, you can relate to them. And yet, at the same time, they're extraordinary enough that we can't explain them on merely human terms. This month, David and Rochelle and then Shelley have shared their grace stories. They've shared stories describing brokenness, some physical, others spiritual and relational. But each story pointed us to gospel healing that God provided, always, interestingly, involving His people, the church, and always giving us, at a minimum, glimpses of the Holy Spirit at work, doing things, accomplishing things, again, that we can only explain as, God did this. This morning, number three, Bob Bolin is ready to share his story. We might nickname him Jonah because Bob ran from the Lord several times over decades, but God chased him down with the relentless grace of his love. Okay. So this is the belly of the whale. Um, Before we start, I don't know, I've ever been up here before, but there are unbelievable bright lights, and the lights bother my eyes. So I may end up putting these on, which frankly, it's a much better look, right? But I'll only, I'll only put them on if I have to. So I grew up in Paramus, uh, not far from here, in a home with virtually no religion. I never saw my parents pray. I never saw anyone read the Bible. God was never discussed, and we rarely, rarely went to church. Um, I had an awareness of God, a general awareness, and sometimes I'd even pray But it was always to make a deal. God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. The only religious person I knew was my grandfather on my dad's side. He was a former um, hard-drinking, pistol-toting coal miner from the hills of Virginia who found the Lord and became a completely over-the-top member of the Assembly of God Church. Um, As far as I was concerned, Grandpa was nuts, and I wanted no part of him or his religion. Things began to change for me when I was was 14. Um, While visiting my family in Tennessee, my cousin Rusty, every family should have a Rusty, by the way, uh, my cousin Rusty took took some of us out that evening to what ended up being an Assembly of God tent revival meeting. Uh, I mean, the meeting was wild. Uh, People were speaking in tongues. Most with hands in the air were crying out, Hallelujah! 
And of course, during the worship music, people were dancing in the aisles. Um, it was truly a spectacle to behold. But at the end of the night, the pastor passionately preached the gospel and spoke of the need to re repent and accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. He then issued a call for people to come forward and accept the Lord. And listening to the pastor's message, I began to feel a nearly overwhelming urge to assent to his pleadings and go up to the altar. It was as if a physical force was pulling on me. But I resisted because I did not understand what was going on. And frankly, the entire evening, whoops, the entire evening frightened me a bit. That night back at his house, Rusty pulled out his Bible and began to read from the Gospel of John and talk about sin and the need for Christ as our personal Savior. And he, too, invited us to accept the Lord. Again, I felt that same nearly overwhelming feeling to say yes to Christ. It was unbelievable, but I didn't. I was not about to give in to something I didn't understand, no matter, no matter how compelling and startling the evening's events had been. So I left Tennessee shaken to the core. Uh, but what I didn't appreciate at the time, however, was that something fundamental had happened to me. A seed had been planted. Back in New Jersey, after a while, I got a hold of a Bible, and I started to read it and pray. I didn't go about my readings in any sort of a systematic or, or thoughtful way. I would just jump from section to section, book to book, chapter to chapter, trying to learn about God and something about this Jesus. Always, however, no matter what I was reading, I'd find myself being drawn back to the Gospel of John. One of the problems that I faced was that I was alone in this journey. Um, I hadn't joined a church, and I, there was no one in my life with whom I was comfortable discussing matters of faith. And so I stayed in this situation that I've just described until I went off to college. I went to Georgetown, a Jesuit university down in Washington, D.C. And the majority of kids I met down there attended midnight mass several times a week. And, they, and my friends amongst that group would always ask me you know, to, to join them. Now, I knew almost nothing about the Catholic religion or any other religion for that matter. Um, but I was truly intrigued by this church that could so effectively and consistently draw college kids to go to church. So eventually I agreed to go along. And the Jesuit who conducted pretty much all of the midnight masses during the four years I was there was a priest named Father Thomas King. Father King was a brilliant man, gifted in homiletics, who had the ability to preach the gospel such that each of us left, each of us left the mass feeling that he had somehow peered into our hearts. So I began to um, attend Mass and regularly, and I went and met with Father King. And I asked, was it okay that I go, not being Catholic, and should I avoid communion? And to my great surprise, he said, he encouraged me to go, 
and encouraged me to partake of the bread and wine. So, so I went through the four years of school, um, reading the Bible, going to Mass, and at least in some informal way, participating in a faith community. After graduation, I decided to formalize my Catholic standing, and I was confirmed into the church. Like in college, I went to Mass, and I read the Bible. But as the years passed, I noticed I was becoming a lousy Catholic. Um, What was happening was the, the more I read the Bible and studied, the more I became aware of areas of church teaching with which I could not abide, with which I completely disagreed. So my answer was to ignore the points of disagreement and practice a Catholicism of my own making. And as you might expect, doing so served to slowly push me away from the church. The final blow in my Catholic journey came in 2001 during the height of the child molestation scandal. I had an exceedingly contentious meeting about the scandal with an archbishop, after which I walked away from him and the church, never to return. After that, I languished for about a year, adrift in a sort of spiritual malaise. Um, I no longer attended any church. I stopped reading the Bible, and I no longer prayed. And increasingly, I found I was becoming a person I liked less and less. During this time, a friend of mine kept urging me to attend his church. And each time he'd say to me, come to my church, it's alive, which was a comment that would make me cringe. Um, So finally one morning while I was in the shower, I became aware of an overwhelming feeling that I was running out of time. I had no idea why I should feel that way or why my time should be short, but, but, but the awareness was absolutely palpable. So when I got out of the shower and got dressed, I called my friend and said, you know what, I'll give your church a try. To my great horror, he attended a nearby Assembly of God church. I mean, images, <laughs> images of my youth back in Tennessee flashed before my eyes, and it took all of my strength of will to go in. But go in, I did. To make matters worse, as I walked through the doors, the building was absolutely pulsating with Christian rock music, which I hated. Um, it was like I was back in Tennessee. People had hands in the air. Hallelujahs were ringing out amongst the, the pews, and in the back, there were people speaking in tongues. I wanted desperately to escape. But finally, the music ended. The congregation quieted, and the pastor began to preach. He was superb and gave a clear and compelling exposition of the gospel and of our need for a Savior. I was enthralled and found myself riveted to his every word. Within a few minutes, I lost all awareness of anyone else in the church. And that same feeling of being drawn overtook me again. So when, when the service ended, I went up to the pastor, decided to stop being Jonah. Um, and I said to him, can we meet, which we did the next day. At that meeting, after a retelling of my faith story, the two of us knelt and prayed 
And I tearfully confessed before the Lord, (coughs) after all those years, I tearfully confessed before the Lord my brokenness and my sin and my belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And with that prayer, and with that prayer, the weight of a lifetime lifted from my heart. The next day, my wife and I went on vacation. And uh, each morning, I'd rise at dawn, something I never do. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen 830 Church before. Um, And I'd sit alone, and I'd read the Bible and pray, because what had happened to me in that day is I developed a nearly insatiable hunger for the Word of God, a hunger that continues even to this day. In the succeeding years, I've realized that the Lord has been refining me, pointing out endless areas of my life that need to change, areas where I still struggle mightily to surrender my will. I've also started to truly believe that despite my litany of faults and sins, I truly am forgiven. I truly am loved, and I truly am redeemed. And I've developed a deep desire for church to become part of who I am and not merely something I do once a week. So what stands before you today is a work in progress, a chronically slow learner who took 50 years to say yes to God's drawing, but someone who is an example of God's extraordinary patience and his overwhelming grace. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Let's pray. Oh, love that will not let me go. What words from the hymnist that have applied for all of salvation history. Your love, Lord. Not our wills, not our minds, not our hearts. Your love is the only reason any of us are here. Your love is the only reason any of us can taste freedom, can speak the name of Jesus and know that that name carries power for life and life eternal. We give you praise, Lord, for what you have done in Bob's life, pursuing him with a relentless love. Lord, let this grace story return glory to you in so many ways for generations to come. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bob's story, which spans decades, fits into a storytelling genre that I will make up and call The Chase. The Chase. There's a version of The Chase in every police TV show or or movie. At the end of the, the story, there's the epic good guys chasing bad guys. If the story happens to be a James Bond or a Mission Impossible flick, 
the car chase doesn't cut it. You need skyscrapers and bridges and cliffs and, and jets chasing one another. In romance, the chase looks like someone after the one who is playing hard to get, or the chase onto the airplane in Singapore when all seemed lost, but now there's a proposal right in the aisle. Crazy. And if you're close to my age or if you just watch too many movies, you will remember this iconic scene on the screen of John Cusack holding up a boombox in Say Anything, chasing the girl he loves. By the way, if you don't know what a boombox is, ask somebody with a few gray hairs. We will explain it to you. For Bob Bolin, who definitely knows what a boombox is, uh, let alone a Sony Walkman, the chase is the central theme of his life. It's not good guys versus bad guys. It has nothing to do with romance, at least with another human being. The chase, as the central theme of Bob's life, has everything to do with his personal experience of the most dramatic story ever told. God was the chaser. Bob was the runner. God was the pursuer. Bob was hard to get. He was Jonah trying to get away from the Lord. But this story is far from unique because every person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ has been pursued with a relentless grace by the Creator and King Himself. There's no variation to that plot line. There's no flipping that story around with us chasing God and God playing hard to get. That version does not exist. No, hide and seek with God always looks like we hide, God seeks, which is why this most compelling story ever told and repeated in the life of every believer in Jesus Christ to some extent brings God praise, glory, honor, adoration, because God would be in His rights to let us go, to receive our rejection and our rebellion and our apathy and our stubbornness and let us have our way. Sin fundamentally means we are rebelling. We're rejecting God. We are denying that He is God and that He is good. And yet even still, God pursues with a relentless love. This theme runs through the whole Bible. We could start with Adam and Eve in the first pages. We could start with Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. But the story of the prophet Hosea summarizes the faithlessness of God's people uh, and our rejection of God. In the story of Hosea, played out in the history of Israel, God instructs this prophet of Israel, Hosea, to marry the promiscuous woman Gomer, knowing that a dysfunctional and unfaithful marriage is to unfold. And sure enough, she cheats on him. But God calls Hosea to woo her back, to forgive. Why? As a living illustration of Israel's, the people of God's, faithlessness and unfaithfulness, turning away to other gods, failing to trust in Him, and God's pursuing, nevertheless, gracious, forgiving love. Hosea summarizes so much of these ugly cycles that fill the pages of the Old Testament. The offertory song, written by our very own John Chung, 
is entirely based on Psalm 139. Verse 7 of Psalm 139 asks these two rhetorical questions that uh, have the same obvious answer. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee, Lord, from your presence? The obvious and only answer is nowhere. You can't hide. God will find you. The song, you'll see later, unpacks Psalm 139 verses 11 and 12 with these words that describe the chase, God pursuing His sinful people. The lyrics will go, your love, God, breaks through the night and your light shines through the darkness. Another consistent biblical imagery is of God as shepherd over His people. And in the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. God will rescue His sheep from darkness, which in the Scriptures is always a metaphor for death. When we think of God as shepherd, of course, we think of the, one of the uh, best-known psalms, Psalm 23, that begins, the Lord is my shepherd. And then when we turn to the New Testament, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, and this is what He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he, the shepherd, leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus is speaking this to the Pharisees who are the righteous ones, not because they are actually righteous, but because they think they're righteous, and they don't think they have any reason for repentance. That was Bob for 50 years of his life, putting himself in the good enough category, not needing God to live life, to, to uh, define purpose and meaning, even though, he, as he said, he liked himself less and less as he drifted away from God. When he stopped running… He says he tearfully confessed his brokenness and sin before the Lord. This is the rejoicing of the Lord as shepherd over the one sheep who comes back to the fold. Jesus, of course, brings this imagery all together in John chapter 10 when he describes himself as the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. In other words, Jesus is saying, I must chase them down. I must pursue them as they wander away from safety and food and provision. Did you pick up those themes as Bob told his grace story? At 14, on family vacation, his cousin Rusty, that is perfect, Bob, down in rural Tennessee, takes him to a tent revival. Talk about a cross-cultural experience for a Jersey kid, even without the religious components. 
Bob hears the gospel and says, I began to fear, feel a nearly overwhelming urge to assent to his pleadings and go up to the altar. It was as if a physical force was pulling me forward. Nearly overwhelming because God, uh, Bob wasn't yet willing to surrender his life to Jesus. Nearly overwhelming. Same urge came when Rusty read a passage from the Gospel of John to Bob later on that night or during that family vacation. Bob resisted, but he left Tennessee, he says, shaken to the core. Why is that? I'll make an educated guess. Because when you encounter something so powerful, so far beyond your ability to even begin to wrap your mind around it, he says, I wasn't about to yield to something I couldn't understand. That's the stance of self-defining righteousness. I will define what's right and good and true about my life, not have somebody say something to me that I can't quite explain. When you encounter something so powerful that you can't explain it, it's deeply humbling, and it begins to undermine this independence from God, this self-righteousness, this self-reliance. He left Tennessee shaken to the core. Fast forward through years of religious exploration and frustrations and self-doubt, and God decides to poke Bob while he's in the shower. Really, Bob? (laughs) Hey, whatever works. Bob said, I had an overwhelming feeling that I was running out of time. Maybe these are just words, but it's no longer nearly overwhelming. We're making progress here. He calls his friend. He says, yeah, you've been nagging me. I will go to church with you. Where he hears the gospel again, this call to put his faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Quote, that same feeling of being physically drawn that I had experienced some 35 years ago overtook me once again. God was chasing, and Bob finally stopped running. The next day with the pastor, he prayed, he confessed, he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior. You might not be a runner like Bob, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, somewhere in your grace story, God has pursued you with a relentless, gracious love. None of us can claim credit for having found God, having figured it out, having exerted our will strongly enough and wisely enough and cleverly enough that we came upon Him. Well, He didn't expect it. That, that story does not exist. Psalm 14 tells us, "'The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt.'" There is no one who does good, not even one. Don't think you're an exception to the alls and the no ones spoken by God through His Spirit and His servant, the psalmist. If you're exploring Christianity or if if you're still resistant to these spiritual truths, can I give you some advice in light of the chasing, pursuing, running dynamic? Don't Spin your wheels trying to wrestle with the idea as, uh, of whether that actually happens, whether God is chasing you, whether He um, tackles you from behind and, and causes you to stumble. The only thing you need to know 
from Bob's grace story and from the scriptural uh, themes is that this is a God of limitless love. He pursues. You and I, in contrast, we tend to give up on people. You know, we might extend ourselves, we might offer some help, we might give generously, but if somebody gives us a stiff arm, we move on. You, you don't want my help? I don't need that either. Uh, you, you don't want me to chase you? I'll go somewhere else. But God, those are gospel words. He is a God of grace and mercy. And His love can overcome your apathy, your rejection, even your biggest mistakes in life. Church, let me close with these thoughts to leave you with. Do you have any friends that you need to invite to church? I'm sure this friend realizes the eternal impact that uh, has resulted from his nagging this friend to come to church with him a few years back. If you don't have any friends to invite to church, pray that God would bring people into your life, that you might love on them, that you might overflow with this best of news about Jesus, the Savior, the King. If you do have those friends, just invite them. You just may be surprised. If they reject you, you just might stick a thought in their mind that won't go away, and they just might give in one day in the shower or on their commute to work or in the wake of a painful divorce. God uses people He has already chased down and rescued to help chase down and rescue the lost. You and I have a role in that. And lastly, God's Word is always prominent in salvation. John's gospel, for some reason, this young guy had no idea, but John's gospel, perhaps it's a verse that you provide. Do you know your Scripture well enough to point someone to the heart of salvation and stick this redemptive, life-giving Word in their brain that just won't go away? That is is the most powerful way to reveal the heart of God in His relentless grace that He offers towards sinners. Let's pray. Lord God, You work in mysterious ways. At the same time, we might say You work in very ordinary ways. You use fellow sinners to reach sinners. You use stumbling, sometimes doubting, always imperfect followers of Christ to invite those who need to hear this healing, restoring, best of news. You use Your Word, Lord, inspired by the Spirit, extraordinary, but very ordinary when we think, we realize in this country that we have access to it in our homes, on our phones, wherever we go. Lord, use every means at Your disposal, the supernatural and the physical material, the ordinary, the mundane, and blow through this place, through this land with the renewing, life-restoring, resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit. Chase us down, Lord and show us the beauty of the Savior Jesus, just as you did in Bob's life. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.